0: No matter the industry, all mid-level leaders manage projects that translate strategy into action. And they know that their success is measured by how fast they can deliver valuable products and services to their customers and other stakeholders. But because customer needs, the economy, politics, and world emergencies change so often, and often without notice, the mid-level leader is ineffective and overwhelmed by trying to complete work that may no longer be needed, or when the work is executed using outdated project management processes. Therefore, these leaders need to learn how to be adaptive, agile, iterative, and experimental in their approach to delivering what their customers and other stakeholders feel are the highest value products and services. My next guest on the business of intuition is Sanjee Augustine. Sanjeev is the founder and CEO of Lightspeed LLC and the Agile Leadership Academy. Sanjeev is a entrepreneur industry leading agile and lean expert, author, speaker, management consultant, and trainer. Over 30 years, Sanjeev has served as a trusted advisor to the executives and management teams at several firms, including Capital One, The Capital Group, CNBC, Freddie Mac, Frannie Mae, Huntington Bank, The Motley Fool, National Geographic, Nationwide Insurance, Royal Bank of Canada, Samsung, and Walmart. Sanjeev is also the author of the book, From PMO to VMO, Managing for Value Delivery, Sanjeev Augustine on the business of intuition. Well, Sanjay, thanks for being a guest on the show. It's so nice to to meet you, at least not face-to-face, but over Zoom. I wanted just to sort of start us off with some basic stuff here. As we had talked about prior to me hitting the record button, we got a lot of people out there who are very focused on managing projects. And I suppose, even if you're not certified in project management, and you're a team leader, you are, in a sense, a project manager. Whether you call yourself that or not, you have to run things through your process, you know, whether it's uh, manufacturing or a service or what have you. We're all in the business of managing projects. But so could you give me sort of and, and our listeners, you know you have a term here about being a value management officer, VMO. You know, so what's the difference? And, and, and I know you you going can talk about agile, you know, so talk about what these things are and why do we need to be making this shift? What's going on that's saying we need a different type of business model?
1: Yeah, so thanks for having me on the podcast, Dean. I really appreciate the invitation. And let's just jump straight into it. So our specialty is in this area of the so-called agile methods. Now, these have been around for 20 years or so. And they include things like Scrum and Kanban and the scaled agile framework, which may be sort of jargon for folks who are not familiar with them. But in a nutshell, it's about getting things done more quickly. So speed is an aspect, getting the right things done, which is focus, is a huge aspect. Like we wanna make sure that we get the right things done and doing it in a fun and collaborative way. So that's the sort of essence of agile methods, right? 20 20 years or so, people have been implementing these methods in their organizations, and we run into issues with organizations that are not wired for the 21st century. Certainly, this happened even before the pandemic. But after the pandemic, there's a huge phenomenon where organizations across the world need to be able to operate in a different way. We have different challenges. We have a higher level of uncertainty. We have this whole thing with the great resignation going on, and we just need to figure out how to deliver value. Now, what is value? All right? So we have to sort of unpack that, but I'm going to pass it back over to you to see if you have any questions about what I just said.
0: Oh, That's great. So what I'm hearing again is, is speed is paramount and and, and pivoting and adjusting yeah. to market yeah. needs, customer needs yeah. in a way that in so doing, you mentioned the word that it's fun. And so maybe just a quick call out to why is fun a secret sauce to this process?
1: Yeah, it's, we have to enjoy our lives, right? So we spend, at least in uh, stateside in the United States, we spend a majority of our waking lives involved with our work. So it's a huge part of our, our, our lives. And we need to have an, what I you know, what we call an elevating purpose, can we feel we're making a difference? So it's not just about fun, but it's about making a difference or feeling like we're making a difference, and or particularly that our work has a difference in what we're doing. So that's a huge aspect of how our teams are put together, or any organization should consider how they're putting their teams together, not only for flow and value, but also for engagement and making a difference when it comes to our motivating or elevating purpose. All right. Great.
0: So we're going to go into a lot of different rabbit holes here. So let me just follow a particular strain of thought that I wanted to get back to. So as I think about this agile work environment, that's quick and fast and responsive, I want to have you explain to our listeners, how do you overlap that with planning? Because I think when people think about their strategic plan, a lot of people have at least started, if not finished their 2022 strategic plan. And they say, all right, here's our strategies, here's our goals, here's our tactics. We've built, we've, we actually built it into our budget. We now know yeah. what we're going to fund, what we're not going to fund, and so forth. You know where I'm going with this. So the question is, how do we plan and set these things into motion with our budgets and with our FTEs all lined up yeah. in an agile world in which you're describing where things change so quickly? How do we make those pivots?
1: So that's a great question. What I'm going to place in front of you are three things. The first thing we need to keep in mind is that we need to move the change needle. You said, as you pointed out, things are changing. This is a very dynamic, uncertain world. So we need to be able to move that change needle. The second thing we need to do is to make sure that the work in our portfolio, and we talk about projects, but let's not even make that distinction between projects or non-projects or products. It, there's work that needs to be managed so let's make sure that all the work in our portfolio is flowing right and then we need to make sure that we're focusing on the right things focusing on the wrong things is just unnecessary redundant work so let's start with the first one which is moving the change needle every organization is needs to make sure that we're laying out as you've talked about you know as i mentioned briefly some sort of strategy So whether we do that with strategy planning or we advocate something called scenario planning, which you uh, you consider uh, multiple scenarios and come up with a detailed plan for each scenario, what we want to make sure we're doing is that we're nailing down business outcomes. At the very high level, we have to identify and measure business outcomes, right? So if you want to move the change needle, where are we going to move it? Where are we going to start Mm -hmm. from? And- In which direction are we going to move it? And how are we going to calibrate and measure as we're moving, right? So the first thing we we advocate doing in terms of planning is figuring out what our strategy is and then articulating that strategy in the form of outcomes. Typically, objectives and key results or OKRs is a very popular way of doing that. So can we get together, plan out our strategy at a very high level, articulate it in terms of Objectives and key results, key business outcomes, and then drive our plans and our portfolio to align with those business outcomes.
0: That and makes sense so I get it. Yeah. So then throw in this VUCA world that we're in, this constant change, and which is what Agile is all supposedly trying to be mindful of. Yeah. How do you make those pivots when we already have those strategies that are somewhat, as one would say, set in stone?
1: Great question. So there's a technique out there. It's been around for a long time, and a lot of the project managers will, will recall this from their project management exam. It's called progressive elaboration, hmm. or al- along with that rolling wave planning. So progressive elaboration, and I'm going to move into the next piece of my you know, number, n- number two on my list over here. It's about chunking the work down. Right? We start with a high-level plan. But we have to break things down into smaller manageable chunks. And to do that, we have to elaborate that in close concert and close collaboration with our customer, right? So can we start with a high-level plan as articulated, articulated by an, with a set of OKRs, objectives and key results? And then for each one of those, can we take them and break them down into more detailed plan when it's necessary, right? At the, what, mm. what we call the last responsible moment. We don't need detailed plans for something that's not coming up right now. And that's where we do interesting. Historically, people have wasted effort. We plan out a whole lot of bunch of detail for things that are not immediately necessary because they're not tied to outcomes, right? And so what we want to do is to progressively elaborate our work and then put in place, and this is a specific answer to your question, what's known as a rolling wave plan, a Mm high-level plan for the long term and detailed plan for each time box, if you will. Let's take take a month at a time. Let's say we have a 12-month plan for a year, and every month we plan out the details for that month. Does that make sense?
0: I see. Yep. So then the chunking and the detail happens on a certain space of time, not necessarily the whole year or whole two years. We're taking it each month or each quarter as the case may be. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So then you had the number two is this flowing... We're talking about, I think the second thing we having to do is flowing of the work through the organization. Exactly. Talk more about that.
1: How do we manage flow? So if you, you take a, you, you consider a highway, right? So I, were you in Seattle? Which is the big city that you live in?
0: Oh, well, Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, uh, Arizona. started okay. in Seattle, yes.
1: Okay. Gotcha. So take any large city, right? And maybe this is different during pandemic times, though actually I think the traffic is kind of as bad, getting back to as bad it used to be. <laughs> yeah. pandemic. And so you take a highway at peak hour, right? Rush hour. And you, you can see the pattern as more traffic enters the highway. The time it takes to go from point A to point B just goes up, right? Mm-hmm. You're flowing for the most part. Right? Maybe this is like 6 a.m. or something in the morning. And then when we hit what's you know the 80% threshold of the utilization of that highway the time to go from point a to point b just goes up exponential and this is just there in system of thinking any sort of resource like our traffic highway or our portfolio our project and program portfolio has the same same, same behavior as we load up with more work what starts to happen is that you know, the utilization just goes up and up and up and at 80% everything just comes to a grinding halt. So you're just sitting in there in traffic and you're not just you're not getting from point A to point B, you're just sitting there because there's too much work in process, right? And so what we need to do is to figure out with this agile value management office that we talk about is how can we make sure, number one, is the work in the portfolio visible? Because if we can't hmm. see it, we can't measure it. If we can't measure it, we can't manage it. So we need to make sure that all the work is visible, just like the traffic on the highway is visible. And then we need to figure out what is the utilization? Are we working on too much stuff? And Mm. if so, what can we set aside? What can we terminate? What can we put aside so that we can get the work flowing again? Now there's another function of the flow and that is the size of the work. Just like a bunch of 18 wheelers are gonna take forever to go down a a highway, the large projects, the big chunk of work just suck up a lot of our resources, right? So the smaller the pieces of work that we work we can work on, we can go faster. Yes. So when we're making, you know, when we're talking about making work flow through the portfolio, it's about making sure that we can chunk the work into smaller pieces and we can manage the utilization and keep it at lower, you know, that 80% threshold or lower. So that's the second piece of our what our managers need to be looking at. And as you very, you know, ins- insightfully or astutely pointed out, this is all of our jobs. It's not just, you know, we look to our managers or project managers. Right. All of us should be looking at ways to do it. Right.
0: So, which again, leads to this last question around doing the right thing. You know, I could see where you know this, I know this, and our listeners know this, is that we commit to things that are wonderful, but there, there's too much coming at us at the same time. We have a huge imbalance between you know, bandwidth and capacity and, and timing and all those type of things. So how do, we, how do we know what the right thing is at the right time?
1: Right, and so this is where the rubber really hits, uh, hits the road. And this is where most organizations fail because guess what, we're great at strategy. We're even great at putting, putting out OKRs and key outcomes or KPIs. Where most organizations fall down is in making sure we can link that strategy to execution. Yes, once yes. we make the work visible, then we can say, "Is this work the right work?" And if it's not, the biggest muscle to flex over there is not working on the work that's not adding value to our objectives and key results. unless it feeds into and amplifies and moves the needle towards the business outcome, we should not be working on this. So it's very tactically, hmm. just like we have the scenario planning sessions, what we what we then move into is a quarterly big room planning session where we get a bunch of key, key stakeholders together and say, all right, you know, our executives have set up this strategy for the next year, for the next quarter, and maybe for the next month. Now let's look at all the work that we've made visible in our portfolio and let's line it up to those objectives and key results to make sure that we are focusing on the right thing. I want to flip this around a little bit mm-hmm. and it's not just about internal prioritization, but agile methods are anchored in lean thinking, right? That came from the Toyota production system. Everything that we do in lean and agile has to be anchored in customer value. So in terms of focusing on the right things, in terms of moving the change needle, in terms of getting the right objectives and key results, we always like to start with a customer-centric view. So in these planning sessions, we're either talking directly to our customers or we're talking with people who know what the, our customers want.
0: Okay. So it makes me think about now the, the human side, the, the, the team side. So if yep. we're trying to figure out what sort of work needs to be worked on right now, doing the right things based on what the customer needs, based on what's most valuable, and yet we've got people who are heading up different teams, and we all think our work is most valuable, right? <laughs> Not just because of maybe we're subject matter experts in that area, but there's also a sense of ownership. There's a little bit of ego that gets into, wait a minute, my my particular project is gonna go into the second quarter versus the fourth quarter or the third quarter or the first quarter? Wait a minute, all of a sudden, I be, feel devalued in this whole process. So how does then the teamwork and the leadership and the trust and that, all that interpersonal communication stuff play a part of this system? So I could see that there would be this, this mirror of to the degree that we can do this process is
1: also going to reflect upon the degree in which we work well as a team. Completely, right? And and so this is our challenge because what we have writ large on on our organization is a siloed way of operation. We work with with many large and medium sized companies and typically to deliver that value to, to our customers, we end up traversing anywhere between seven to nine organizational silos. Just imagine this, you have to your customer asks for something, we need to just pass it off to a planning group and then some development group and then some production group. And by the time we get that value flowing back to the customer, we've gone with to, we've <laughs> pushed the work, thrown it over the wall seven to 12, uh, seven to 10 times, excuse me. So wow. the question becomes how can we work not only as teams, but more critically as teams of teams? at the at the organizational level at the program or portfolio level because each one of our teams each one of our business groups are going to have their own agenda they have their own you know objectives to get to meet their own performances and their own bonuses to be shooting towards but how can we align back to an organizational strategy and how can we work as a team of teams and this is where book comes up, uh, comes up which is the moving from program management office to value management office or from PMO to VMO and so what we've discovered or put out and worked with many of our customers over the last few years is when we can put a cross-functional group, a cross-functional, cross-hierarchy group, which is essentially a team of teams, a few people from some teams, some executives, some people across the silo, and then we can work as a group to figure out what are the strategic objectives that are coming down organizationally, what are the objectives within each one of our departments? And then how can we work as a group to prioritize those? Maybe we have a tiebreaker to when there's a conflict, but prioritize that and then keep that value flowing, not just across the individual projects or programs, but across the entire organization.
0: So then to that point, though, what sort of mindset do these team members have to
1: give up in order to work within this system? Well, here's the mindset that we, we <laughs> were finding, right? in in today's world it's 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 an interesting sin, phenomenon you know we're all in this somewhere within this in this covid wilderness making our way out some people are figuring out whether to go back in person the mindset is are we committed to our elevating purpose right are we all working towards that shared goal because if you don't have a shared vision our individual agendas are going to take precedence can we say we are part of a team that has a shared vision, a shared goal. And if we are, then find, let's find ways to work together. Now, the ways of to working together might be different. Maybe we're not in person anymore. We're doing a Zoom call like this. But mm-hmm. it doesn't matter because it's all outcomes focused. It's all about delivering value. And if we can align individually, if we can align our personal agendas and where we want to go with where the organization wants to go, that's the biggest mindset. And it's again, it's not new. This has always been the case. The best performing organizations are the ones that can clearly artic- articulate an elevating purpose, that can, that can excite people and make them passionate about purpose. Then we can come together as a team to get, the, get stuff done.
0: So as part of the elevating purpose that you've been describing up to this point, could that also be something that relates internally, not just external to our customer?
1: Absolutely. And I think that best happens when we can say our internal purpose for, in in our case, it's about making sure that our, you know, our customers' lives and we make, you know, we make people's lives transform and valuable and fulfilling. And so that's something that, that applies equally internally to our organization, to our customers, and to the world at large.
0: So I'm thinking like, you know, triple bottom line scorecards, you know, we are looking at not just your stakeholders being the external community, the, the buyers and so forth, but it's also the further beyond that is our world in which we live. And also internal, it's our, it's, it's us, you know, we are part of what we are here to serve as we are serving the external, but we're also serving each other. Exactly. Um, so I have to ask this because they should have asked us right in the beginning, because I'm sure there's somebody going like, this all sounds good, but. You know, so the question is, what industries will this work? And is there, is there a cutoff? Because like, I know with TQM and I know with, with you know, like Six Sigma, these were, these were processes that were designed specifically for manufacturing, you know, Six Sigma, let's reduce the error rate of the things in which we're producing. And that made sense in manufacturing. I knew back in those days, it was sort of radical to think, wait a minute, we could actually get Six Sigma into a healthcare organization or into a service organization. And I don't know necessarily how successful they were. But my question is: Will this work in all industries, or are there some industries that just this doesn't quite fit?
1: I think the the question is not so much in the which industries will this work versus where it won't work. I think the question becomes: Are we going to treat human beings as human beings? There's a lot of of dehumanization that has happened, and that's just the the way in in a manufacturing situation or in a retail situation it's the reality and it's, it may or may not change, but when we come to knowledge workers, knowledge workers have options now. Knowledge workers Mm -hmm. can generally choose where they want to work. They, where they, you know, if things don't work out, they can go to another company another organization. So it works remarkably well when we, we are able to look at people as people, not as resources. You know, there's been this term that's been used as like resources. No, we're looking at people, people as human beings, we're looking at them as value-adding human beings, and we're looking at at teams of people working together. So Mm -hmm. this is not so much a function of industry so much as as it is a function of a human-centered ethos of how we all come together and work towards a common purpose. And now, can that be in manufacturing? Absolutely. Can it be in product development? Can it be in R&D? Those are not the defining factors. I think the defining factor is... Are we going to treat people as people? And if we are able to treat them as people, then this is a great organizing principle of doing this way. Well,
0: and I and I thank you. That I, I appreciate that that uh, in a sense the philosophy behind all this, where you get into sort of these complexities. I, I we spent a lot of time in healthcare, for example. Healthcare yeah. is going through some tremendous changes right now. It's being forced to reevaluate itself as an industry. You talk about the great resignation. We talk about. 500,000 nurses not coming back into the, you know, into the industry because they're just burned out and tired. They're going to do something else. You know, there's 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 economy of scale that's happening. Healthcare organizations are gobbling up other healthcare organizations so they can have, you know, get better rates from their care providers, the, the insurance companies and so forth. There's a lot going on in healthcare. So we just take that extremely complex on the front line of COVID. Mm-hmm. Can this work in that environment? Or is it just like, We are, we would, we'd love to be able to take on this elephant, but the the reality is it's just so complex. This just would be almost a, an activity of futility, you know, to try to make this happen in that kind of industry. What's your thoughts?
1: It already is, right? So it it is. Oh, thank you. Good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hope you were going to say that.
1: (laughs) It is already being applied successfully in healthcare. So if you go to any emergency room, what you're going to see is a you know a physical manifestation of what we call a Kanban board, which is a big visual sign. So as people enter, they're going to all the yeah. making the work visible. It's all there now. Whether you're allowed to see it or not, I don't know. But if you're a worker in that emergency room and you, you there's a system that people are following, right? So the physical mechanics of agile methods, or lean methods, are already there in, in most healthcare organizations and those hospitals. Now, can we treat the people on the front lines as people? Can we? Give them the PPE that they need. Why are they leaving, right? I think some of the things is because in the the initial uh, days of the pandemic, we didn't have enough protective equipment for a lot of these people on the front, front lines. Now it's a question of whether they feel safe. You know, what is the vaccination policy? Do they feel safe? Are we treating them as people? Are we, you know, we're putting them on the front lines. Are we equipping them with everything they need to be on the front lines? So you're you mentioned you're in Phoenix, Arizona. I was actually making a trip to Arizona. I was sitting next next to this medical doctor, and what he did—it's kind of interesting. He's not, he actually middle aged he wasn't that old. At, at the, so he gave up his job as a you know pretty high-paying physician, and he said, you know, I want to make a difference right now in in this pandemic. And so he started. Mm-hmm. He became a itinerant physician, if you will. And so what he does is he makes the trip up to, and I don't exactly know where it is, somewhere in Arizona to serve the Native American, mm. uh, uh, the needs of the Native Americans on the on some of those reservations over there. And yeah. and so that's an example of how people are motivated by purpose. He's putting his life on the front lines. He's going out, out, out to those reservations and helping implement these kind of methods on the front lines within the healthcare space. So yeah. people are doing this and they're doing it you know they're taking extraordinary risks, right? When they're putting your line on the, your lives on the on the line, if you will, but and they're doing it because they believe in in healthcare. Got it.
0: I like it. So back to your ED analogy and that every all the work is visible and in a way it sounds like that's a an example of where this agile value focused approach could most likely be seen in healthcare. And I've noticed in looking at some of your literature, you talk about sort of mid-level management. Does this also work for an executive of a large organization, where we typically would say these people are more about messaging and longer-term strategy and creating direction? And here's why I'm asking because I I was uh, I, I sensed in talking to an ED manager who wanted to grow into a larger executive role. That that person would need different kinds of skills and approaches to be successful at that level, based on the paradigm about how this company works, than what she was used to in the ED, and that in a sense you can't be in a, you can't use an ED process in order to be a an executive.
1: Yeah, is that true? I believe it is, and I think it's even more true in our current environment. So I'll bring out. Up- another analogy in a story over here is that lots of my stories come from long flights where I sent, sit next to
0: me. <laughs> no, I hear
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> so this one was, uh, this flight the story that I'm going to sit and share with you is when I was sitting next to a retired general, right? So he's a general from the United States military. And we just got talking about different types of work we were doing. And he asked what I was doing and I, I talked about his stuff. And it turned out he was an accomplished graduate of West Point and all that. And so mm-hmm. I asked him about his progression. I said, you know what? We work in this field of leadership and management. Can you articulate some of the differences of how you change your approach as you move from a colonel to becoming a general officer? He says, absolutely. In fact, he said, we're trained. We have to go back and get retrained in how we work. Because what makes you successful at a colonel at a level is upper middle management, if you will is getting stuff done, being super focused and and pushing your own agenda and just making sure you get the right results. And he said, that's the exact recipe for failure at the executive level, because Mm -hmm. what you have to do is you have to learn how to work together with other leaders. And so what happens is in the military, they send them back to war college to get retrained on how to work more collaboratively and how how to show up as inspiring and passionate leaders you know, articulating that elevating purpose. So it it is absolutely more essential for executive leaders to understand that what made us successful as middle managers is not what's going to make us successful as executives. And in some some instances, we might need to actually go back and quote unquote, get retrained.
0: And it sounds good. I like it. I really do. Certainly in a training and development company like us, I think, well, there's more opportunities there. I believe that. And I also am noticing the the issue with having to train or retrain people who have made a career over doing something a certain way and getting rewarded and compensated for it. I'm thinking about a book by a guy named John Kotzenbach out of Harvard who talks about leaders at the top. And his, his point was, the higher up you go, the more difficult it is to create a team because we've been so rewarded to be in charge versus to be as a member of a team. So. In theory, I agree with you. In practice, what do you think? I mean, how easy is it to go to retrain
1: these people to be at a different level of leadership? Well, I don't know that we have a choice, and I don't know that they have a choice. The pace Mm -hmm. of change is so, so rapid and brutal that if leaders don't step up and change their methods, they're being removed from those those positions. You're seeing a lot of executive leadership turning over and younger, more collaborative leaders being brought in to get rid of a more command and, you know, historical command and control type of style of leadership and more towards leadership and collaboration working together in, in these large organizations. And so Silicon Valley in particular has a lot of recent examples, uh, including Satya Nadella at Microsoft, who just came in and brought in a very collaborative right. style of ma- management and completely turned Microsoft around.
0: Right, and then a few days ago he sold half of his shares, but that's a whole other story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, these management stories only go so far, you know. They're- <laughs> I know
0: <laughs> exactly, and we can only be on so many flights together, right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, So I guess my I want to get your reaction to something here as well, Sanjay. It's like the same you know, change has been with the constant over the last. Well, it's always constant, but certainly. We've reacted negatively to the change because a lot of us have been feeling out of control and we can't predict what tomorrow is going to bring. And uncertainty and all of our sort of, you know, reptilian brain starts getting reactivated and being in a fight or flight mode. And, you know, and, and some of our worst behaviors can sometimes come out, out of the fear of what could be. And right. so in the world that you described, change is such a, a primordial soup that we're always swimming in it. And in fact, we're embracing it. We're, we're reflecting on it and we're becoming agile to it. My sense is that what gets one through that is the relationship they have with their colleagues or their friends or their families. Is that your sense too? Is that the more we have those deep bonds with each other, those teams within teams, those connections we have, whether it be we developed it in person or face-to-face or over Zoom, that's what helps us through this massive turmoil.
1: Thoughts? It does, but actually, I would not start there. So I would start that okay. uh, with each one of us individually. You know, there's that f- f- famous phrase, I don't know, it's attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. He said, be the change that you want to see in the world, right? Yeah. So change starts with each one of us. And in, in this environment, the pandemic environment, there's a high level of anxiety. There's a high level high level of uh, feelings of separation and isolation and fear. And so Hmm. people are reacting negatively because of those, you know, those, those base elements that are, that we're facing in our world, right? So the, when it comes to change, I see as each one of us as having to create the space for ourselves. Can we take a step back? Can we be, be more mindful about giving ourselves some grace, giving ourselves some time to understand what needs to be done, finding that internal center and then reacting from, and from that, that, that's that sense of balance and sense of center with everybody else, right? So absolutely, we need to be able to reach out to each one of our people on our teams, each one of the people across teams, but we have to be operating from a the, from a sense of self, self and a sense of balance. So I think it starts with creating space for ourselves, making sure mm-hmm. that our own lives are in order. Can we get the right exercise? Can we get the right sleep? Can we get the right uh, downtime so that we can then operate from that center and, and operate from a position of balance?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right on. I would agree that that's got to come first. And I've heard somebody else say at one point that the other things that might follow that people seem to be so hungry for right now is connection and progress. Yeah. That, yes, we got to take care of self. Everything you said is correct. We need to connect with people in meaningful ways. And we also need to feel some sort of progress, meaning we're moving forward in something, whether it's I took the dog for a walk or I helped move a process through my company or something that says <laughs> we're not reading, meeting another barrier. We're actually finding a way around it and getting ourselves better at calling those things out, indicating to our teams and our colleagues and so forth, this is a day in which we made progress in this way. And I think that's where your visible comment really comes into play about being able to show the work visually. And when you mean visually, you mean literally visually. You mean like a board or something that's color-coded. We see, you know, Things moving through the freeway system.
1: Exactly. Either physically or digitally. And by the way, what you just mentioned in terms of seeing progress is number one on my list. It was about moving the change needle, both organizationally okay. and, and, and personally.
0: Got it. Do you have a digital favorite when it comes to visualizing
1: the flow of work? There's tons. You know, The leading tool in use in the agile space is something called JIRA. The the tool that we use most for that visualization is a tool called Lean Kit from Planview, but there's there's so many t- digital tools. It's a, it's a question of getting the right ones that work for you. Many people are on Microsoft Microsoft Suite, so f- yeah. finding something that works on the Microsoft Suite are is is good.
0: Good, excellent. Well, Sandy, it's really been a, a stimulating conversation yeah. this morning here. I know it's eleven o'clock where you are. I think and eight o'clock where I am, but a nice way to start the day. Tell people how they can follow you, connect with you, maybe even hire you?
1: <laughs> Google's <laughs> always the friend. So, <laughs> San- yeah. Sanjeev, Augustine, you just type that in and you can find, you can find me on, on Google. Lightspeed, uh, L-I-T-H-E-S-P-E-E-D. Lightspeed.com is our company website. We have a great team of folks that, that work with me and, and help deliver awesome solutions to our customers. So lightspeed.com, and then I'm on LinkedIn. So pretty accessible pretty much anywhere.
0: And awesome. Thank you. Well, Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real delight. Likewise. Thanks, Dean. Thank you for listening to the Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.